Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, please uh, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Um, this time it's for real. This is not a drill. I repeat, this is not a drill. We are looking at Revelation 20. Um, I feel like I'm losing my voice a little bit, so uh, pardon my uh, just my different voice today. Uh, but I think with God's help, I think I'm going to be able to get through this um, this sermon today. Let's let's pray. God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are seated on your throne in heaven, ruling over the universe. You are sovereign. You are in perfect control. You are not surprised by anything. You know exactly the timing of all of the events concerning this world, this universe that you've created, Lord. You created everything and you are uh, worthy of our praise. And God, we thank you for giving your son Jesus to save us. Thank you for sending him to die on the cross to save us and to redeem us and to make us a kingdom of priests to you, Lord. And God, as we look at the book of Revelation, and especially as we look at a difficult chapter, a controversial or just complicated passage, Lord, I pray that you would guide us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and that you would take away the distractions of trying to figure out timings or theological systems, Lord, but that instead you would speak your truth to us, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be ready for action, that we would heed this battle cry, this call to conquer that you've made to us, Lord. Please fill me with your spirit to speak your words today. Please fill all of us with your spirit to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Revelation 20. Um, one question that I'm sure pretty much everyone here, and if you haven't, then maybe you're weird or maybe I'm weird, but one question that I've asked myself sometimes is what would I do if I only had one month left to live or one year left to live or, or, you know, you name it, maybe the, the details are unimportant, but I'm sure that every single one of us have at some point toyed with the idea of what would I do if I knew that I only had one month left of life? Oh, well, you know, call my parents and I don't know if we call all of my unbelieving friends and preach the gospel to them or whatever it is that you have come up with. Or or maybe a different variation of this question would be, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Or what would you do if you knew that that this world as we know it is going to end 
in a year, right? I, again, I think that unless I'm strange, unless I'm weird, I feel like these are questions that, that all of us at some point in our lives have uh, asked. Um, well, Jonathan Edwards, who, who was a, uh, a pastor, a theologian from New England, um, he was very mindful of these things. And, and at the age of 18, now this is, this is shocking to me. At the age of 18, he was pastoring a church. Can you imagine an 18-year-old as a pastor of a church? Anyway, at the age of 18, between the ages 18 and 19, he wrote his uh, now famous 70 resolutions. And here's a couple of them. One of them says, I am resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. I'm going to read that again. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. So can you imagine if we lived like that, if we always lived thinking, okay, if within an hour, the last trumpet will sound. If within an hour, Jesus is going to return, how am, going, how am I going to live this life? Now, here's another resolution. He said, resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Again, I'm going to read it again. Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Now, this, is, this, is, uh, this particular resolution is, is very appropriate for, for our passage today and really for the entire book of Revelation because I believe that ultimately what the book of Revelation is teaching the believers is that, is the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. If you think about it, we have, we have been looking at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor and, and therefore, or by extension, to all of the churches in the world, to, to the church throughout all of the ages. And it is a call to conquer. It is a call to be faithful, to be a faithful witness uh, to God. It is a call to be obedient to God's commands. And after the seven, the, the seven churches are mentioned and addressed each specifically, the rest of the book is not so much concerned with the timing of the end times or the timing of, of the Armageddon or the millennium or all of those things. The rest of the book is uh, uh, basically the, the, um, it is reinforcing that call to conquer, and to be faithful. In other words, John is saying, and, and you know, Jesus through his angel, through John, is saying to the churches, I am calling you to be faithful. I am calling you to conquer. I am calling you to live in obedience to me in light of these heavenly realities, in light of what is going on in heaven, in light of what is going on on earth, in light of what will be in heaven and what will happen on earth. That is the book of Revelation. Again, I don't think that, the, that the, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to endlessly speculate about the timing of these events. 
I mean, there, there is a certain aspect, there, there are particular passages where the reader is actually called to speculate a little bit, to, to uh, decipher a little bit, right? For example, when he talks about the number of the beast, he actually calls the readers to, to you know, try to decipher that number. Or when he's talking about the mystery of the woman who is riding the dragon, he does call the reader to, to, to decipher what's going on with, the, with all the different heads of the dragon and the horns and all of that stuff. But I believe that ultimately the point of the book of Revelation is not for us to spend hours and hours just deciphering all of these codes and all of these uh, uh, numbers and trying to figure out the timing of all of them. But rather, the point is to show us history from God's perspective. The point of the book of Revelation is to show us everything that is going on in this world, but from a heavenly perspective. And, and that is the case of, of our passage today. The book of Revelation has been showing believers what things look like in heaven, what things will look like for God's enemies, and what things will look like eventually in the new heavens and the new earth. And I believe that this passage, as, uh, as debated as it is, I actually believe that Revelation 20 is one of the clearest pictures of heaven is one of the clearest pictures of the judgment of God's enemies. And, and eventually chapter 21 and 22 are one of the clearest, if not the clearest picture in the Bible of the eternal destiny of, uh, of God's people. So let's read Revelation 20. Then I'll give a little bit of context and then we'll dive right in. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their, forehead, on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So with this in mind, with, with, with the book of Revelation being a battle cry, a, a call to conquer, to faithful obedience, to faithful witness unto death, we can think of the book of Revelation from two different perspectives, right? Imagine being one of the believers in, in Asia Minor and hearing all of these things read to you. Well, I think that the, there are two possible ways that this could go. One of them is you are a faithful Christian. You are under persecution. You have probably already seen some of your brothers and sisters being killed or being arrested for their witness to God. And so you are, even though you, you are suffering and experiencing tribulation, hearing all of these things from God's perspective encourages you and emboldens you to continue being a faithful witness, to continue living a life of obedience to God. Even if that costs your own life, knowing that God is seated on his throne, knowing that God's people, God's elect are protected from his wrath, knowing that his enemies will be judged, this should give you absolute comfort and encouragement and boldness to continue to live faithfully, to conquer. Now, if you are one of those seated in, 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 uh, in that church, or perhaps, you know, in the, maybe the church of Laodicea or one of those more uh, or less faithful churches, and you're hearing this, these things, this should really, really scare you. This should bring you to your knees. This should bring you to repentance. This message, hearing that those who hang out with Babylon will experience the same fate as Babylon. Hearing that if you do not flee Babylon, that if you worship the beast, that if you if you uh, um, follow the beast, you will experience the same fate as the beast. This should really bring you to repentance. And so throughout the book of Revelation, we see over and over and over that God is dealing with his enemies one by one. But in every single one of these instances, we are given a picture of God's people safely guarded from his wrath. Think about it. When we, when we were looking at the seven seals, in between the sixth and the seventh seal, we get a picture of God's people and they are protected from his wrath, right? They, they, 
that's when he talks about the 144 who receive the seal of God and who are protected from his wrath. That's when he talks about the great multitude in heaven and how they are in the presence of God and, and God is and Jesus is their shepherd and, and nothing can harm them. And then the seventh seal comes and God's wrath is poured on the earth. Then we see the same thing with the trumpets, right? It goes to the, to the sixth trumpet and then we're introduced to the story of the two witnesses. And remember that at the beginning of that story, it talks about how John was called to measure the sanctuary of God, the temple, and the people that were worshiping them, that were worshiping there as a sign of their protection, their protection from the coming judgment that was going to come. In chapter 12, same thing. We are introduced to the conflict between Satan and the woman and the seed of the woman. And over and over, we see that the woman and her seed are protected. They are protected from Satan and they are protected from God's wrath. In chapter um, 14, before the seven bowls are poured, we see another vision, another vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion with his army. And his army is once again enjoying his protection. And then the bowls are poured and the judgment of God falls upon his enemies. In chapter 19, the destruction of Babylon, or, or after the destruction of Babylon is, is told, once again, we see God's people safe. And they are called to celebrate the destruction of Babylon and they are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. In chapter 19, the second half, we see the second coming of Jesus. We see Jesus coming triumphantly as the, as the conquering Messiah and, and destroying his enemies in the battle of Armageddon. And who is there with him safe? His people, his heavenly army, the church, the church. All of the ones that he has sealed are with him safe from his wrath. So we see over and over in the book of Revelation, God systematically judging his enemies one by one. And in every single one of those instances, God's people are safe and protected by him. And, and the book of Revelation, it, sorry, in Revelation 20 is no exception to this. We see, and, and this, this I believe is the end of the, of the climax of the book of Revelation, uh, in which Satan is finally judged. But we also have a picture here of God's people being protected. Think about it. With the seven bulls, humanity, the ones that continued in rebelling against God are judged, but God's people are protected. Um, Babylon is destroyed. The system of this world that is opposed to God is destroyed. Then we see the, the in chapter 19, we saw specifically the beast and the second beast, the false prophet, being destroyed and God's people saved. And now in chapter 20, chapter 20 is dealing with the destruction of Satan. So what am I trying to say here? What, why do I keep repeating this, that God's people are safe while God's enemies are judged? Well, what I want to communicate here is that knowing our protection, knowing our destiny after death, Knowing that after death, we will be in the presence of God, enjoying his protection, reigning with him. And also knowing that Satan's final destiny is destruction should encourage us to endure, should encourage us to live faithful lives of obedience to God. Again, the book of Revelation is a book of encouragement. The book of Revelation was not written so that we would go and and build bunkers and hide in them. 
No, the book of Revelation was written to encourage us to live boldly for Christ. And so chapter 20 is doing exactly the same thing. It is encouraging us. And one of the first things that it deals, or, or one of the things that it deals with, uh, Revelation 20, is the final destruction of Satan. So notice here in verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then skip over to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I believe that the main point of this passage I believe that the main thing that John is trying to communicate in this passage is the defeat of Satan. I don't think this passage is, I mean, yes, a thousand years is mentioned multiple times in this passage. And yes, we have to answer to the question, what, what does he mean by a thousand years? And we will do that. But for now, I want us to notice that the point of this passage is Satan will be destroyed. Satan has no power. God is absolutely sovereign over all of his creation, over all of this universe, including Satan. Satan has no power. He is no match for God. He has already been uh, defeated at the cross of Jesus, and he will be decisively destroyed and done with forever at the second coming of Jesus. And so, notice how Satan, I mean, you know, I, I like to think of the story of the Bible. I, I know that it's not exactly this way, but this helps me. I like to think of the story of the Bible as, as this uh, amazing drama of redemption. And if you think about it, Satan is but a pawn in this, in this little, or, or sorry, Satan is but a little pawn in this, uh, uh, in this magnificent story, Satan, I mean, yes, he is, he is God's enemy and he's powerful and he can deceive and, and he can accuse and do a lot of things, but ultimately he has no power of his own. He is bound easily, easily, no problem. When God decides that Satan has to be bound, Satan is bound through his, uh, through his angel. The releasing of Satan is not that Satan was very crafty and and was able to escape. No. God allowed, God ordained that Satan would be released at the end of the thousand years. One of the things that is extremely helpful in interpreting uh, Revelation 20 is um, Ezekiel 38 and 39. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, 
um, the prophet Ezekiel is, is narrating this, this battle, which I believe is the battle of Armageddon prophesied. He is narrating this battle in which Gog is lured into attacking the city of God. And, and it is fascinating to read how this is not God's own initiative. This is God luring him. This is God almost like, it almost sounds like he's fishing for, for this Leviathan, for this uh, uh, serpent in the ocean. And he is luring him to come attack the city. Because by coming and attacking the city, he is basically digging his own grave. Satan is being lured to his own demise. So again, I, I believe that this, this entire passage is showing us that Satan has no power. That Satan is completely defeated. That even in his worst moment, like in his final assault in history, in his final attack upon the city of God and his people, the battle... Again, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Like, the battle, what battle? There's no fighting. He, he's, he has nothing against God. He comes, he deceives the nations. Uh, the beast and the, and the second beast are there. And fire consumes them. They are completely obliterated. And one of the things that becomes very clear when looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that God explicitly does this, the, the luring of him to show his glory, to show his greatness, to show his power, to show the nations that he is God. And I mean, this makes sense, right? God could have, could have just defeated Satan right, right off the bat and be done with him for good. Why does he have to release him after a thousand years to show who the boss is? to show that he is in control, to show that even though he might be able to send this final attack, he is completely done. And also to show that there is no chance of him doing it again. Right? Even though, when, even, even though he had this final attempt, this final attack, God destroyed him forever and there is no chance that Satan will meddle with God's creation ever again. Right, I think the, I, I believe this passage answers to a question that that I've thought about, and I don't know if you've thought about this question, but um, if Satan was able to deceive Adam and Eve in Eden, if Satan was able to to mess up God's beautiful garden and God's world, what is stopping him from doing that again in the New Jerusalem? the new heavens and the new earth? Well, I believe that, Reve that Revelation 20 responds to that question. It's almost like this intentional releasing of saying, oh, look, Satan is loose. Oh, psh, never mind. He's done. So this, all of this communicates that God is absolutely sovereign over the history of redemption, over this drama of redemption. I, I, only mention Ezekiel 38 and 39, but I really, really encourage you to go read Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. The, the, it becomes so, so clear that John is basing what he is writing here on the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, 
Notice how this passage opens with the binding of Satan and then saying that he will be released. And then there is a little section in between and then there's there's like a sandwich where Satan is released, right? So uh, the sandwich that I'm talking about is, you know, the ends of the sandwich are verses 1 through 3. And then the other end of the sandwich is verses 7 through 10. What is in between those two passages? Well, once again, is God's people enjoying his protection. God's people in his presence being protected from the, the, the deceit of Satan, being protected from the power of Satan, and being protected from God's wrath. So uh, look at me. Look, look at verse 4. Don't look at me. Look at verse 4 uh, with me. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on, the for- on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, I was trying to see how far we can go before having to address <laughs> the, the thousand years and, and the, the theological issues here. So, this is, this is, this is probably the most debated um, chapter in the Bible in terms of eschatology. Eschatology is uh, the the theology of the end times of the last things. Um, so I want to give you a really brief summary of the different views. This is something that I've abstained from for the most part, but I think we've we've come to a point where we just have to do it. <laughs> yeah, we can't do it anymore. So I I want to summarize the main three views and then just tell you what I what I feel like makes more sense. Now, let me just say, if you hold any of these three views, uh, you are welcome at Kaleo. In, if you hold any of these three views, um, we, don't like to, we don't like to fight about eschatology here. We absolutely love to talk about eschatology and, and even debate a little bit, but we we believe that we are brothers and sisters, and we believe that this is a secondary issue, meaning it is not something that determines your salvation. It is not something that if you disagree, then you're a heretic and, and you know, must be burned at the stake. Or No, that's a joke. We don't burn heretics at the stake. Um, so here are the three views, and this is going to be a very brief summary. Um, the first view, or the first view that I'm going to mention, is called premillennialism, and obviously, all of these views get their name from the thousand years, the millennium, the thousand years. So, premillennialism, as its name suggests, it teaches that Jesus will return, Jesus' second coming will happen pre-millennium, previous to the millennium, and then the millennium will start. So, in other words, they will say that. Uh, Chapters 19 and 20 
are written in chronological order. In other words, chapter 19, when Jesus comes and defeats the beast and the second beast happens. And then chronologically after that, Jesus reigns here on earth in the throne of David for a literal thousand years. And then Satan is released and he is defeated and he is thrown into the lake of fire where arguably the beast and, this, and the second beast had already been for a thousand years. Um, this view tries to, tries to interpret the book of Revelation, like I said, chronologically and tries to do it very literally. So if it says it's a thousand years, then it's got to be 1,000 years. Uh, if it says that, it, well, yeah, they, they believe that, that uh, this reign will be on earth, specifically in Israel. So that's, that's one view. That's the premillennialist view. Um, I, I'm happy to talk a lot more about these things afterwards. Please come to me and, 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 and ask me about these things because I'm happy to talk about them. But right here, I'm just giving a, a brief summary. The next view is uh, post-millennialism. So if, if premillennialism taught that Jesus came or that Jesus will come previous to the millennium, then what do you think post-millennialism means? Well, it means that Jesus will return after the millennium, after the thousand years. And so this view, uh, sometimes they take the, the, the 1,000 years to be literal. Um, they would say this entire uh, age from the, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus is the kingdom of God. But there might be a literal thousand years or a golden era right before the return of Jesus. And then when this world, when this world is mostly evangelized, when this world is mostly following Jesus, when, when the reign of Jesus is, is just so clear and evident to everyone, then Jesus will return to establish his eternal kingdom to, to bring the new Jerusalem here to earth. Um, some people will say, that some post-millennials would say, no, actually the thousand years refers to the entire church age and the thousand years are not a literal thousand years, but they are a, a, a figure of speech or, or a, um, yeah, a, a symbolic number that, that simply means a long, a long, long time. So that's, again, that's a very brief summary of the post-millennial view. Now, the, the last view or the third view is amillennialism. And this one gets a really unfortunate name because if you if you follow the 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 logic, amillennialism would simply mean there is no millennium, right? Like if you're an agnostic, well, it just means I don't know anything, or or I, I you know, whatever that ah uh, uh, prefix just means a negation. And so uh, I think amillennialists get a bad rap in in. Thinking, oh, see, amillennialists don't even believe in the millennium. Well, no, that's not true. Amillennialists definitely believe in the millennium, but they believe that it will happen, uh, or sorry, they believe that the second coming of Jesus will happen after these thousand years. They believe that the thousand years are already happening. Uh, they are not a literal thousand years. They are a, um, a figurative thousand years and amillennials different from postmillennials believe that this kingdom is spiritual and is actually happening in heaven not here on earth they would say yes god jesus is seated on the throne and 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 he is sovereign over all of the earth 
But this particular kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom, is happening in heaven right now. It is a spiritual kingdom. So that's that's a, a, a brief summary. Now, with uh, amillennialists, different from premillennialists, they do not take chapters 19 and 20 to be chronologically ordered. They, they actually take... Um, everything from chapter 16 to chapter 20 as being retelling a retelling of the same event over and over and over from different perspectives. And so, for example, look, thinking about chapters 19 and 20, they believe that both chapter 19 is telling us of the second coming of Jesus and his final victory, and Revelation 20 is doing the exact same thing. It's telling us about Satan's rebellion, the second coming of Jesus, and his final victory over Satan, the beast, and the second beast. Now, um, the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is that Revelation 20 is a retelling of the same concept that has been told a number of times. In other words, I don't think that Jesus will... I don't, I don't think that, that there is a chronological order in the sense that Jesus will come back, he will defeat the beast and the dragon then there's going to be a thousand-year kingdom and then Satan will be released and then Jesus is going to come and, and defeat them again and throw them into the lake of fire. Rather, I believe that these two chapters are telling us the same events. They are telling us the final victory of Jesus. So, uh, let's see. So a couple of things, a couple of technical things, and then we'll we'll move on to to the remainder of this of this uh, message. But just a couple of, of technical things. I for me, I believe that the number one thousand is not li- being used literally here. This is a book. The Book of Revelation is a book that uses numbers very symbolically, right? It it throughout the entire book, numbers are being used. Symbolically, number four is a big number. Number 10 is a, it's an important number. Number seven, number three, there are a bunch of numbers. Six, 666 is a number, right? They're all being used uh, for, for the most part non-literally. The number 1,000 in the Bible, throughout the Bible, is used oftentimes as a figure of speech. For example, remember that, that famous psalm that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, if you take that number to be literally, then does it mean that God doesn't owe the cattle uh, in, in the 1,001st hill? No, right? The number 1,000 means God owns the cattle on all of the hills. He owns all of the cattle of all of the world. Or for example, when it says that uh, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation, but he will show steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. Once again, I think that he is speaking, almost using the number 1,000 as, as, a, uh, as a hyperbole or as a way to magnify and show God is so merciful that, that his, his love and his loving kindness go to the thousandth generation. This is how, how merciful he is. So again, I believe that the number 1,000 in this passage means it's a very, very long time. Not a literal thousand years, but a very long time. It is especially contrasted with the limited dominion 
that Satan and the beast are given, right? Satan and the beast are given this very short window of time where they will actually conquer, where they will have a little bit of dominion. And then it's contrasted with the reign of Jesus for a thousand years, with these people for a thousand years. Um, another technical issue is, I already mentioned these divisions that John is seeing are not chronological. Rather, they're telling us the same thing with different perspectives. So one of, the, one of the really cool things about looking at the book of Revelation this way is that in every single one of the visions that is telling us the same thing, he is emphasizing something different. For example, in chapter 19, he emphasizes Jesus as Messiah, right? He emphasizes Jesus as the conquering warrior that comes and finally defeats Satan. Now, in chapter 20, the emphasis is Satan as completely defeated and God's people reigning with him. All of the promises that he made uh, to the seven churches, right? He says, to the one who conquers, I will give this. To the one who conquers, I will give this. Well, all of a sudden, these promises are beginning to be fulfilled in chapter 20. Um, I think one of the hardest questions for this passage is, well, what do you mean Satan is bound Right? If you're saying that the millennium or the thousand years is this age, is the church age, but it says that Satan was bound, I mean, Satan seems to be alive and well. If he is bound, his chain got to be really loose. I mean, he's causing a lot of trouble. Right? And, and there are plenty of passages in the New Testament that talk about Satan being very active. Right? Satan is deceiving people. Satan is... Uh, um, persecuting people. I mean, even here in the book of Revelation to one of the churches, uh, uh, Jesus says, I know where you live. You live where, the, where Satan's throne is. And, and he will send, or, well, you know what? I'm just going to read it because I'm misquoting it. But he says to the church of Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So if Satan is bound, how come he can, uh, he can test these people? How come, how come he can send this tribulation and potentially even kill some of the believers? Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but again, please please come and ask me. I, I'm, I did a lot of research here, so I'm happy to share uh, what I've learned with you, but... Uh, the short answer is, from the passage, it seems that Saint, Satan's binding is for a very specific purpose, right? If you look again in verse 2, it says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not, and, and this is the key, what is the purpose of his binding? so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. A couple of clues here. That word that is translated any longer could actually be translated as yet. So I think an interpretation, a translation that would make sense here would say, so that he might not yet deceive the nations until the thousand years were ended. So what am I trying to say, what am I trying to say here? That the binding of Satan has the specific purpose of him not yet deceiving the nations into this final attack 
on God's people. In other words, Satan can continue to persecute the church. Satan can continue to, to attack God's people as long, you know, obviously under God's sovereignty. But the one thing that he is not able to do right now is to organize this massive uh, uh, army, to organize this massive assault on God's people and God's holy mountain. Why not? Because it's not the time yet. It's not the time yet. There will be a time when, when uh, in God's sovereignty, he knows when, when Satan will be released and say, okay, this is it. The end is coming. You can now go and deceive these nations and deceive uh, these, these people to launch this massive attack on the city of God, but not yet. It's not your time yet. Also, if you think about it, Satan is a spiritual being. And so he's obviously not chained with a, with a physical chain in a physical place, right? He is, uh, he is spiritually bound as a spiritual being that he is. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a short answer to that. But again, please come to me and ask more if you, if you have questions regarding this. So with all of this said, I take that the martyrs, these people here that are um, uh, in, in verse 4, John says, And I saw the souls of those who had been be- beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. These people here are the martyrs, are the believers, are those who have remained faithful, but who have already died. And they are now in the presence of God, and they are reigning with Christ. Now, I think it makes perfect sense to think of this uh, of this reigning, of this image, of these people being there in spirit because it says right there that he saw their souls. He did not see their bodies. Their bodies are still beheaded. Their bodies are still here on earth waiting to be reunited with their bodies at the final resurrection. But for now, what he is saying, and, and, and again, think about it in the context of the letters that he's writing to the believers. He's saying, be faithful. Be a faithful witness. Be willing to be faithful even unto death. Why? Because the moment you die, you are going to heaven, to the presence of God, and you will reign with Christ for a thousand years. I believe this is what John is trying to say to the believers to encourage them. The moment you die as a faithful martyr, you are going to the presence of God. And that's what we have been talking all along. The way that we conquer the beast, the way that we conquer is by dying as martyrs. Because the moment we die, we go and join Jesus to reign with him. So when it talks about the thrones, I think it's a little bit difficult to determine who is seated on the thrones. There, There are different options, but just in keeping with the context, I believe that it is those believers. The believers who have died, the believers who have been faithful, who did not get the mark of the beast, they are seated on thrones and they are reigning with Christ. They are alive with him. It says, uh, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's at the end of verse four. And then verse five says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, in other words, these believers who have died, they have partaken of the first resurrection. In other words, 
there will be a final resurrection at the end of the age where they will be reunited with their, with their bodies, but they are already alive. Remember the words of Jesus to Martha when Lazarus died? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks to her, do you believe, in, do you believe this? And I ask you, do we believe this? Do we believe that everyone who trusts in Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus, even though he dies, he will live? Well, this is the fulfillment of it. These believers who have, all of the believers who have died, who have been faithful to God, are right now alive with Christ. And they are partaking of the first resurrection and they are reigning with him in heaven. Remember the promises to the churches. To the church of Smyrna, he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, be faithful even though you will die for your faithfulness, but I will give you the crown of life. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church of Thyatira, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. In other words, to the one who conquers, he will rule with me. To the church of Laodicea, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So, I go back to the same thing. Shouldn't, shouldn't this motivate us to be faithful to God? Shouldn't this motivate us to obey his commandments? The people of God are described in the book of Revelation as those who are faithful to him and those who are obedient to him. There is a, one of the verses that I, that I really like after after encouraging them with, with this vision of the 144,000 in, in chapter 14. This is what the voice from heaven says. Write this, blessed are the dead who, died in, who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. If we knew that we are going to be in God's presence the moment we die, if we knew that we are going to be reigning with him the moment we die, if we knew that Satan has already been defeated, he is bound so that he, is, he has no control over God's plan and he will be ultimately destroyed, shouldn't that make us like the boldest of Christians? Shouldn't that make us the most fervent evangelists out there? It's a win-win situation. Satan is defeated. He's bound. He will be destroyed. Even if we die, we're going to go to the presence of God. We are going to reign with Jesus. There's nothing to lose. Even if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, there is nothing to lose and everything to win. Now, if this is not enough encouragement, which I believe it should be, we move on to the last section of this, of this chapter. 
where it talks about people's eternal destiny. After Satan is completely obliterated with the fire that comes down from heaven, from the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, and he is consumed. By the way, in verse 10, verse 10 was one of the verses that was tricking me a little bit because it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The reason why this passage was tricking me was where the beast and the, and the false prophet were. And so I was thinking, okay, so how can this be a retelling of the same thing if the beast and the second beast are already in the lake of fire? But then I looked more into it, and actually in the Greek text, there is no verb provided there. So basically in Greek it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where also the beast and the false prophet, period. So in Greek, when you are not provided a verb, you just use the, the last verse. So in other words, this is how I would translate it. It says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where also the beast and the false prophet were thrown. So in other words, it's talking about the same event. They are all thrown at the same time, but the focus of chapter 20 is Satan. It's not so much the beast and the dragon. He's already dealt with the beast and the dragon, uh, sorry, the beast and the second prophet in chapter 19, but in chapter 20, the focus is Satan, but the throwing is together. They are being defeated together. They are going there together. But what about the nations? What about those who joined the beast and the dragon and, and marched against the beloved city, against Mount Zion, the, the mountain of God. What about all the dead? I mean, this is, this is it. This is the end of the age. And this is what, is, what will happen. There's a, a great white throne. God is seated on his throne. And I saw the dead, all of the dead, great and small, everyone. Every single one of the dead. And it says, books were open, verse 12. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everyone, every single person in this world will be judged according to what they had done. Jesus said that we will have to give an account for every careless word that came out of our mouth. Paul addresses this topic of us being judged by our works. He addresses multiple times this topic. All of this world will be judged by the works that they did. But here is the, here is the kicker. Here, here is the, the really incredible thing. Even though everyone will be judged by the works that they did, there is a second book. And this is the book of life. And those, verse, nine, verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is, this is it. This is their final destruction. They join Satan and the beast and the second beast to be in the lake of fire, to be punished, to be tormented, to be destroyed forever. 
But those whose name is written in the book of life, they move on to the next chapter, chapter 21 and 22, which tell us of the amazing beauty of the new Jerusalem, of God's finally consummated kingdom. What's, what's, what's the difference there? What gets us into that little book? Well, it's not a little book. I don't know how big the book is. What gets us into that book? It's the Lamb. It's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. He is the one who died. He is the faithful witness. He is the one that went to the cross for us. So that everyone that would believe in him would have eternal life. He is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in him will not experience the second death. This is the second death. Going into the lake of fire, this is the second death. Everyone will experience, well, almost everyone, except for those who are alive when Christ returns, almost everyone will experience the second death. Sorry, the first death. That is just, you know, die. All of us are going to die. But those whose name is written in the book of life will not experience the second death. We will be in the new Jerusalem, in the presence of God, enjoying his beauty, enjoying his power, enjoying his presence for eternity. Just because our name is written in the book of life. When Jesus sends the, uh, I think it's when Jesus sends the 72 to, to, uh, to cast demons and, and to, you know, preach the, the kingdom of God, they come back and they are super excited and they say, oh man, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus tells them, do not rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. That is ultimately our, our hope. That's one thing that we should be completely rejoicing over, that our names, if we have trusted in Jesus, if we have believed in his, in his work for us, our names are written in the book of life. I want to finish by reading... Uh, Jonathan Edwards' resolution again, the last one. It says, Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Well, you just did. We just saw the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. And we're going to see even more. We're going to see the happiness of, of the new heavens and the new earth, of the new Jerusalem. But all of this should motivate us to live lives of holiness. To live lives of obedience to Christ. Like I said, this is a win-win situation. Even if we die, we will be in His presence, reigning with Him. 